Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 48. And as you're turning, there's a couple things. One is uh, Carol Albright would like us uh, to celebrate with her as one of her sisters, uh, Catherine. Um, and I want to see Carol, make sure I've got this right. Carol, that's right, correct. Catherine will be turning 100. Uh, so we want to celebrate with her and give our congratulations uh, to her through Carol and uh, be sure to hug. Well, I guess you can't hug on Carol. Um, socially distance the hug, Carol, uh, before you leave and uh, congratulate her and send our greetings and well wishes uh, to her sister. And then just a second plug um, is for our prayer time as it started back up. And um, I have the elders and the staff reading The Prayer Revolution by John Smed. And uh, there's a quote in here in the beginning um, that says this, a noted missiologist, Ed Steitzer, writes, church planting movements are unlikely to happen in our Western context within our generation. But then this writer responds, this writer might provide an accurate description of our existing situation, but the biblical narrative leaves little room for pessimistic predictions. In fact, in both the Old and New Testaments, we find that great revivals and attendant renewals are often quite literally just a prayer away. It's in the darkest times of decline amid periods of stunning indifference to God's kingdom that God often pours out a spirit of prayer and repentance, which becomes an overwhelming tide of truth that converts hearts and heals nations. So again, that's just a plug for us to come together. I wish we could be meeting in here instead of the youth room. And I understand there are things that go on and it's hard to get here um, on Sunday mornings. There are things that happen. I'm just asking if you would be praying, if not here um, with the local church, that you would be taking time at home to be praying for the kingdom of God to come because it is truly just a prayer way. So that's my thankless plug uh, for that. And now we turn to the scripture and we find ourselves uh, where we have fast forwarded to the end of Jacob's life since last week. And this is our last part of the study. And so he's on his deathbed and we have a moment. And so it says, hearing that Joseph was coming, Israel gathered his remaining strength. He sat up in bed and gives a great blessing to Joseph and to his children. And I want you to understand that this is truly a magnificent triumph of his life Not according to me, not according to our study, but according to what the scripture says. For this is what it comes down to in the book of Hebrews. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now this should be an incredible thing that of all the things that happened in Jacob's or Israel's life, that the scripture comes down to one statement on the very deathbed of Israel himself, and that is the point that the scripture points us to, of saying this is where Jacob was faithful. So it's never too late. And the giving of God's blessings and his, his ministry that he does to us and through us never ends to the very last moment. So let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, it's your word that we come to, and so Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would come in abundance Lord, that he would give us eyes to see and hearts to understand. And Lord, there are some in here who could care less. They were made to be here. There are others that are struggling with trusting you or obeying you. They want to do their own things their own way. And so, Father, I would 
truly ask that you would allow them to see just how great a love that you had for them and have for them even now. That you would give your son, Jesus Christ, that he would shed his blood and that we would be adopted as brothers into the family of the king. So, Father, you teach and you change us to look more like our Savior today. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this passage, we're going to be looking at what it means to become heirs. And so the first thing we're going to look at is adoption itself. And so there's a physical adoption that is happening in this passage where Israel takes the sons of Joseph and he has an actual, in some ways, a ceremony. But we need to understand adoption from this perspective for our understanding, um, even in today. So there's some good things that are happening with adoptions. So there's open adoptions now, which mean that you don't have to give your child away and then never hear from them again. Um, there's being more opportunities for people who have given their kids up for adoption to be able to continue a relationship. So there's open adoptions that have been good. There's a lot of the pro-life movement. So kids are not no longer being aborted as, at the rate they were, but now they're being uh, adopted out to other families. But there's also more adoption ministries that are happening around the world. So there's some good things that are happening where kids are being brought into homes uh, with loving parents. But there's also some bad things that continue to happen. So a lot of times adoptive uh, families are afraid or confused about what it should mean or uh, they're fearful of the changes that are going to happen. A lot of people start saying, well, you never know what you're going to get when you adopt a child. And they also have misguided motives. Sometimes they think that if I adopt a child, that somehow God's going to love me more because of that. And that's not the reality. So we need to kind of grasp and understand what does it mean to adopt. And here we have a godly picture of Israel adopting the sons of Joseph. And so um, Israel adopts Manasseh and Ephraim as his own. Now, again, it, it seems like uh, some commentators say that maybe what was happening here was Israel, when it talks about him being, uh, his eyesight being minimal, and then he lays his hands on the wrong kids, um, that somehow he was just, because he is 147 years old, he's allowed to do some mix-ups, right? But it's not what happens. I really believe what's going on here is a solemn ceremony. And he is in the process. And I do think that the kids, which would be late teenagers by now, actually sat on the knee of Israel. And so he doesn't get it wrong. He's not um, senile at this moment. He understands. And we see that because he comes back and he says, I know what I'm doing, Joseph. And so he goes through this ceremony where it's, it's a solemn liturgy that he does. Now he does that to get us back to a sense of 12 tribes. But now if you count, there's now at least 13 tribes, if not 14 tribes. So again, we have to do kind of our math and understand that what happens is when God gives the 12 tribes of Israel, that one, he takes Levi out of it. Remember, Levi doesn't get physical land. Okay, so he's the tribe that gets a portion of the Lord. And then Joseph is, is removed from a nation in the land. But his sons now make up two tribes of the sons of Israel. So we really do get our 12 tribes. And I want you to understand that the Bible is not incorrect when it talks about the 12 tribes. But it happened in a different way than just through natural means. Now, we also have to understand the significance of this adoption. Because what Israel does for Manasseh and Ephraim is he gives them uh, truly the privileges of a son. This is not just symbolic. 
Okay, This was an actual ceremony that allowed them uh, to become true adopted sons. And it's not done for Jacob. It's not, this isn't a new thing for Jacob or isn't this great for grandpa to have or whatever. This is something that Israel does for Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, I also want you to think that this is truly a wise, wise thing of Israel. Why do I think that? Because these two grandchildren are different than all the rest. These two grandchildren have grown up in Egypt and in the royal court, no doubt. So all their other cousins were out in the field as shepherds. And if you would have read between the passages that we were at last week, if you read through the story of Joseph up to this point, you would find that they were, um, the, the Egyptians didn't like shepherds. They didn't like smelly people. And so they, even Joseph was saying to his family, kind of stay out in the fields. Don't come into the city. Don't be around the Pharaoh. But these two grandchildren are growing up in the court of the Egyptians. And so they're being probably raised with a whole lot more things than their cousins ever could dream or imagine. If you remember the story, the true story of Henry IV, um, we don't know if he said these words exactly or if they were given to him. But remember, he compromises his life by being a Protestant and helping with the Huguenots um, to compromise and become Catholic. And he said this, Paris is worth a mass. See, it's easy for us to compromise. And so what, what Israel's doing for his grandchildren, he's trying to give them a godly heritage. He's saying, I don't want you to, to think that what Egypt has to offer is it. I want you to have a godly heritage and to be raised in the fear of the Lord. And so what he does is very, very significant. But what he does for Joseph is he gives Joseph a double portion. Now, what is the double portion and why Joseph? Well, typically the oldest son would be the one who would have a double portion of his father's inheritance. So everybody else gets one and he gets a double portion. Well, we know that what happens is Simeon is the firstborn, and we know that Simeon did some things that were wrong. And if you were to see from First Chronicles, okay, it says the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief, uh, came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So we know that the, the double portion, and this is why Manasseh and Ephraim are the ones who become the nations. So Joseph becomes, in essence, the firstborn. And so he's given the double portion, and so he has the rights. Now, one of the things that we have to understand is that these guys, these kids, Manasseh and Ephraim, were true sons. True sons. Now, again, as we look at today, even with normal adoptions, uh, people sometimes have insensitivity or they're foolish because they start to ask questions like this when they come up to families that have adopted children and natural children. So which one are your real children? Hmm. Remember Vody Bachman saying that very clearly as he would walk around when he, come, when he comes back from Africa to speak um, at conferences and the people would come up to him, Christian people would come up to him and say, well, which are, these are your real children. And he says, well, what does that say to the children that I've adopted? They're all real children. 
And that's what, what happens for Manasseh and Ephraim. They are the children of Israel. And so with that, they are full tribes and they get all the benefits. All the benefits of what it means to be a child of Israel. And so this is a very significant uh, adoption that goes on. And in the midst of the adoption, then what happens is that Israel starts to talk about the inheritance. Now, we all recognize that the family of Jacob is a dysfunctional family. And again, people make qualifying things in regards to adopted families. You never know what you're going to get because they might bring something. They might do something to your family that might mess something up or whatever. But let's make sure that you get this. All families are dysfunctional. Every one of us has skeletons in the closet. Every one of us has things that are messed up. So all of us are dysfunctional. And so we need to be very, very careful before we start passing judgment on other people's families or their decisions or their choices. But there is a sense, and we know this because we've read through the story of Jacob, that there is something that is messed up in this family specifically. Now, we know that he's chosen favorites. He's chosen favorites with wives. He's chosen favorites with families. He's chosen favorites with his sons. He's chosen favorites now with his grandsons. And again, I I don't want to dismiss that because there is uh, the truth that goes on there. If you were in the family of Leah... You would have said things like if they, people came up to you and go, well, why don't you go ask your dad? Well, dad doesn't care. What You have to go through Joseph. Joseph's the kid that dad loves. I could be killed at any moment. Dad wouldn't care. Now, again, even in a cursory understanding of that, that messes people up. And so this has been going on for, for many of them a lifetime. And so it it has affected them, but what happens is God, remember, God stepped in. And God, through life lessons, hard lessons, and trials, changes Jacob to the place where he becomes Israel. Now again, he's old. And again, we, we might look at this and go, you know, I can't be forgiven for what I've done, or I just don't have enough time left, or it's too late for me. It's never too late. It's never too late to, to go back and repent to your kids. It's never too late to make things right. It's never too late to go and help raise your grandchildren in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. It's never too late. And so that's where we find Israel now with the children. For these were the things that drew Jacob and listen, Joseph back to God were the hard trials. And so in the midst of these trials, then what happens is Israel gives the promises of God. And we see that there's been a huge transformation. For in this part of the book of uh, Genesis, God is written all over it. It begins with God and it ends with God. And it's not Israel's perspective of saying, look at what God did for me. He's saying, see what God has done. And that's a completely different perspective. For Jacob has truly now become Israel. And Joseph, this little arrogant teenager who was going around in his multicolored coat, talking to his brothers about saying, hey, I had this dream. Tell me what it means when you guys were bound down to me. 
So what did, Je- what did Joseph have to go through? Being thrown into the pit, being sold, being in prison. Then he finally figured out that he was to become the savior of his brothers, not the Lord over his brothers. And so God uses a lot of things in our, our lives to change us, to become more like Christ, to become loving, to become merciful, to become gracious. And then what Israel does is he lays on hands. And I want you to understand that this was happened during special occasions, okay? And there are times in the scripture where it talks about negative, where there are curses brought upon people, but here's a, a, a giving of a blessing, So it's a special occasion where we reach for something tangible, physical, and visible to serve as a sign of what is happening invisibly. So it's why we take the Lord's Supper. This is a visible sign of how God ministers to us through Christ at the table. So when we lay on hands, it is a way of asking for God's blessings. So that's what's happening. Israel places his hands upon the kids. Now he's given a blessing for God's promises, but also reminds him about the trials in life. So the blessings are the same blessings that have been there from the beginning. Nations are going to come from you, kings, and you're going to have a promised land. Now the blessings continue through us. Because we see Christ coming, we are the church, and we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth. And so we continue with the blessings that have come from Israel down through the generations. But he also, in this perspective, he has kind of a sweet time where he remembers Rachel. Now again, I think what he's doing is he's reminding these two boys of their grandmother. Hey, your grandmother that you never got to meet was a special woman to me. And here's what happened. She died, and I want you to understand that this happened after he had come to God. So again, should we expect that our lives are going to be without trials or sorrow? No. There's still going to be trials and and sorrow, but the question is, are we following after God, or is that the thing that pushes us away? And so Israel's saying to these grandkids, hey, even in the midst of hardships and trials, God is still faithful. He's still faithful always. And so even though they think that that, um, he's given a wrong blessing, he says, I know what I'm doing. For God is sovereign in his choices. And we hear this from 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. For God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So God is always moving. He's he's doing things. And that means no one is ever outside of being used by God. And being used by God in, in great ways. So... Here's Israel giving these blessings and he's laying his hands and he's saying, I know what I'm doing because God is choosing who he's choosing to give. But then what he does is he gives them the blessing. Now, again, there's, there's the physical blessing for the land and the offspring and all those things. Jim Boy says this, we try to leave our children well situated in life with good education, useful friends and contacts, 
And sometimes we want to give them good bank accounts or other assets. But he said, these can all perish overnight. What we need to give to them is God. Vody Bachman says this, there are worse things than being poor. It's not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's not bad that we want to give physical things to our kids. That's, that's a good desire, and I know our kids want it. But it's not the end all, and when it becomes ultimate things, then they become idols. The greatest blessing that we have to give is our spiritual blessing. It's our covenant faith. It's our true adoption. It's the greater adoption that we give to our offspring. Now, why does all of this happen? It happens because of love. First, the love of the Father, the love that God has for us. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And I know I've said this before, but I think it bears mention again. There's a lot of people that I love in this room, and there's a lot of people that I would give a lot of things, even some of my money, or if they needed to stay at my house, or needed my time, and everything like that. But there's not one person in this room that I would give my children for. Not one. So I don't understand the love that God has. Because God gave not for friends. Not for good people, for sinners. He gave his son. And so it's that love that he has that he adopts us as his own. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this about adoption. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and we have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Now I want you to understand that's we're not called as slaves because one of the things that people see in adoptions today is some, sometimes people adopt kids so that they can do the work around the house or do things for them. And maybe sometimes you were brought up, I was brought up in a, a Baptist background, and so I never, um, in a Baptist background that was uh, legalistic. And so it was a thing of you kind of had to earn God's love. And if you didn't earn God's love, then somehow you're doing something wrong. And so I always felt like I never had the privileges of a son. I always felt like I had to do something more because God was going to be displeased with me. And so I had to do more. I got to do better. And so the grace of God, though, is he says, when I adopt you, I adopt you as a son, and not just a son that's coming to do things for, for Jesus. I'm coming and asking you to have rights and privileges of a true son. You get everything. And so that's what he does for us. And I want you to turn to chapter 17 of John, because I want you to mark up your Bibles. And yes, your pastor said to write in your Bibles or whatever you need to do, but I I want you to hear what Jesus is saying in his prayer to his father, starting at verse 22, John 17, verse 22. He says, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one for I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and listen and love them even as you loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. For I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That's Jesus' words for you. Father, may you let them know how much they are loved, as much as you loved me from before the foundation of the world. That's an incredible gift. And he does that for us, and he does it through who? The Son. For what Jesus does is he lays down his life for us. He dies for us. And he takes his hands, and they're the nail-pierced hands, and he puts them upon the cross, and he bears our sins so that God, when he looks at us, doesn't see us. He sees Jesus. And he remembers them no more. And Jesus comes to us and he says, because I have completed what you could never do, you are now my brothers and sisters, prince and princesses of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus' nailed, scarred hands comes and he takes and he says, take this and eat of it. Be nourished because I shed my blood and I gave my life for you so that you can be sons and daughters of the King, just like me. Amen? Story of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do, we praise you. And Lord, we don't get it. We don't understand the love that you give to us. We try to get the concept. We try to to grasp and understand the truth. Lord, I pray that we would take it to heart. Lord, maybe there are people here this morning who have felt alienated from you, who feel like they've done things so bad in their life that they can never be called your son or your daughter. Lord, how easily we go after things that are cheap and momentary at the cost of what is everlasting and pure. And so, Father, we thank you that we have a Savior in our brother Jesus Christ who took our sin and nailed it to the cross He defeated sin and death. And he's buried him. And then you have thrown him as far as the east is from the west. And you remember them no more. Father, may we see ourselves, may we see one another as you see us. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So give us now this sign, this visible sign. Apply it to our hearts into our lives. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.